let's go ahead and get started. Make the most of our time here. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this, your day. We pray that you would watch over uh, all the activities of this day, uh, the ways in which you call us into worship, the ways in which we fellowship with one another, the ways in which you instruct us and teach us and show us Christ more clearly. Uh, Be that the case this morning in Sunday school and again in worship following. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't gotten it, there's uh, there's a handout up here or in the back. Uh, this is week three of a short history of, of church music, so we're having to ignore a lot of things like um, liturgy and development of liturgy and uh, some other some other aspects and just kind of hitting the highlights. Um, there were a lot of highlights last week. Sorry. Um, I'm trying to keep the highlights to a minimum this week uh, so we can kind of focus in on a few things, but still there's a lot. You know, you got a good thousand years to cover in, in a matter of minutes, and so um, it's a lot, to, a lot to kind of get in there. But I do want to do a quick review from last week, just kind of set the stage of where we've been. We talked last week about the idea of the musical thought in the life of the church uh, as developed through the writings of Augustine and Boethius, both of whom wrote uh, books on music, specifically music, uh, in and from a theological standpoint, um, giving biblical justification for the ideas of how music worked. Um, one of Boethius's thoughts can be summarized in the idea that music is beautiful to the degree that it reflects universal perfection, which gives a whole different kind of emphasis and perspective, right? Um, because at that point. Uh, in terms of our understanding of it and our knowledge of it, we grow in our knowledge to be able to apprehend those things which are inherently beautiful. Uh, those things which are beautiful because they reflect the created cosmos, those things that reflect the character of God. Uh, which is also, and we'll get into this some more next week, but it's an interesting element as well with regards to um, what the role of a composer is. And, and how you judge your work. Because it has a lot to do with the idea of, of how well does a composer reflect the inherent potential that a musical idea has. Not just, is this a nice piece, but was the composer successful in accomplishing the work of reflecting what could be inherently um, involved with the, with the melodic material that they're using? Back up a little bit here. Uh, along also with Boethius, music reflects moral concerns on a cosmic level, on a relational level, and on soul levels. Um, he talks about the idea of, of cosmic harmony, of ethical with regards to playing and how that um, works person to person, and also from the sake of the harmony of the soul, are, are you at rest, that aspect of shalom. Of, of truly being harmonized, of, of being lack of discord, that has a theological and sin component as well. We also talk from the practical level, the ways in which um, different types of chant were codified and organized, Ambrose of Milan and Gregory the Great, and you see their dates and their information there. And also that the music used in the development of the Mass uh, came primarily from the Psalms uh, and biblical songs and were used to uh, interspersed within the service based on various readings uh, or various liturgical activities. And so it was very specified with regards to how, um, how there was a kind of an ebb and flow of music and scripture. 
all that in a little more detail, just a little more, <laughs> not a whole lot, is online from last week. But I guess it kind of, gets, kind of sets the stage uh, for where we are today, uh, which is moving to the ideas of, of polyphony. And to build up the idea that I want to teach three terms here. Uh, one is the idea of monophony, which is like chant, uh, the idea of one note at a time. It's unison. It means literally, you know, one sound. And so you see there an amen. Amen. You sing that with me. Amen. And you see the, the, the um, little musical score there. Um, we're all singing the same thing, same time. That would be monophony. Uh, this is a later development, but to give you context, um, homophony, which is multiple notes sounding together, like we, what you think of with regards to um, a hymn, that the words have the same, in the notes have essentially the same rhythm. So everybody's singing essentially the same thing at the same time, but they're singing different notes. That creates uh, an aspect of harmony. Specifically with regards of, of homophony, you have um, a melody and supporting harmonies. So for example, you see, the, um, see a few measures there of holy, holy, holy. The top part is the melody. Holy, 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 you know, we know that part. Everything else, everyone's singing the same notes, the same words at the same time, but their notes are supportive as harmony to the melody. So let's sing a couple bars to this. Interactive here. Mm, this melody note, everyone else find your pitch if you can. If not, sing melody. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. So you get the idea there. Obviously, we do this on a fairly regular basis with regard to hymns. We're singing the same words at the same time, but we have different notes that creates a melody and harmony that supports that. And then you have the idea of polyphony, which is essentially two or more melodic lines, uh, polyphony meaning many sound. So you see an example that we will not sing this. Um, oh, that we could, but yeah. You, you, see, you see there laid out, there's a soprano part, alto, tenor one, tenor two, bass one, and bass two. So it's a six-part texture. Uh, each part comes in, this is a Kyrie, Lord have mercy. Uh, each voice part comes in at a different point but the melodic line reflects one another. It may not be exactly the same, but it's reflective of one another. So for example, tenor one begins with Kyrie, and soprano begins two beats later, um, same notes, uh, same rhythm. But then, it, then it, after uh, two bars, it breaks off into its own collection of notes. But you've got this echoing back and forth. It's a conversation, sometimes you'll hear it described as, a conversation between different lines of melody. Um, so each individual part in a good piece of polyphony has, um, has its own melodic characteristics. And so, for, for example, um, you look back at Holy, Holy, Holy um, in altos, dear altos. Um, altos don't usually get a very interesting part. Altos often sing about two notes in a hymn setting. And, and um, that you don't... You don't necessarily want that isolated on its own. It's like, and now we'll feature the altos with their two notes um, because it's in support of the melody. 
But with polyphony, each individual part has its own characteristics, has its own beauty, has its own melodic interest. And in fact, one of the interesting things that develops in polyphony uh, with regards to um, Renaissance as well, that there will be times in which um, there are harmonic clashes that come together when voices sing together um, that to our ears sound like somebody just sang a wrong note. But from their ears, they're thinking in terms of what makes sense melodically. So this, this the, the soprano line, they're thinking from a horizontal perspective. Within this melody of the soprano line, this is how the melody needs to develop. Within the structure of the melody of the tenor line, this is how it develops. At this particular moment in time, from a vertical perspective, those notes sound like they clash. But the value is placed upon the melodic content of the lines on a horizontal basis. So for example, make sure you understand kind of that difference between horizontal and vertical. Look back again up at the, the example of holy, holy, holy. Everyone up and down is pretty much singing the same words at the same time. So it's a, it's a vertical approach to harmony. Look again at the polyphony. Everyone's not singing at the same time. Um, in this example, they never sing at the same time because the, the first bass line drops out before the end. Um, but there's, this, there's this, this contour and this texture that you see of these individual melodic lines. And so the value is placed in a different place um, as you see those lines develop. Does that make sense in terms of the horizontal and the vertical? So the beauty is when you get somebody like Bach, but that's next week, but um, who's writing essentially um, homophonic music, but doing it in such a way in which the individual voice parts have their own interest. And they're not just in support of a melody singing something really boring, but they actually have character and interest in and of their, in and of their own self. So we're, we're, that's kind of where we're headed here with these three types of, uh, of, um, of music, the uh, monophony, homophony, and polyphony. But to back up just a moment, we ended last week with the, the uh, codification of the chant and the idea, too, that um, the notation really had not been invented. So there were like little opportunities to... Uh, in, in, the, in the text, little arrows or little markings to kind of indicate the contour of the melody, but not necessarily the notes themselves. So it was sometime between the 9th and the 11th century in which music notation in some form or fashion that was transmittable um, became known. So <clears throat> you know, before it was more of a sense of aiding memory, now you could actually teach a piece of music, which is why uh, musicians from various churches would go to Rome or to centers of learning and study music at a, at a school of music, a school of cantorum. And they would learn the music and then take it back to where they came from. Um, because you couldn't transmit individual sheets of music. Uh, you transmitted the knowledge to a person who then transmitted that to other people when they went back to where they were. Uh, now with the ability to notate, you can actually share music around. Uh, early notation was four line. You get kind of the semblance of the melody square notes, as you've seen from some of the examples that we've done. Uh, sometimes you have notes on top of each other, extra little squiggles and things. It does not necessarily tell you rhythm, because the rhythm is, comes from the, um, uh, the lyrics. Um, once again, at this point, there's still not a way to notate rhythm effectively. And so it's still very word-driven and word-oriented. 
So it was primarily vocal music. If instruments were used, they were used to accent, uh, to support um, the singing parts. So like if you were playing along, you'd be thinking the words you know, in terms of, of, of knowing the rhythm of how to play. So once again, the emphasis in, in speech. Along comes uh, Guido. Guido d'Arezzo. Um, you see? Yes. Uh, in terms of rhythm of the old notation, was it less necessary because the oral tradition would have given them guidance on where the rhythms were supposed to sit, or did it mean that there was wide variation in how it was interpreted rhythmically? Um, we don't have, I mean, we don't know for sure, but it, it's still based upon the natural rhythm of speech. Um, Enchant is essentially, uh, you know, amplified speech. And we, we, we kind of talk in a natural rhythm anyway. If we don't, then what we say sounds odd. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that, there's that natural kind of way. You get a group of people together and, you know, say, say this line together, and it kind of coalesces into, into a type of rhythm. And so accentuating that with notes. Um, yeah, we have no way, real way of knowing practice how that was from one place to another. Right. On your front cover of your little handout here, you see the hand. That's known as the um, Gordordian hand, uh, Guido's um, method for um, indicating pitches. And so there are various notes on various joints of fingers. Um, and he came up with this idea, the, the chant that you see uh, to the upper part here, the first, the first syllable of each phrase, ut, re, mi, fa, sol, la, which are accentuated in, um, in red, uh, are on successive notes of what we would think of as the scale. Ut, re, mi, fa, sol, la. Or if you're a Julie Andrews in Sound of Music, you replace ut with, with do, um, which eventually became replaced with do. But this is the foundation of the idea of, of knowing the pitches and the relationship between the pitches, because this was a known chant. And so the ut, re, fa uh, system, based on Guido and the, the mnemonic device of using the hand and the joints of the hands, became uh, able to transmit musical ideas from one place to another much more easily. And along that, with that came the idea of, um, of notation. Um, early polyphony came from the standpoint of what is known as, as uh, organum, which is singing separate musical lines at a fixed interval. And if we had time, we, we could talk about the whole foundation uh, from perspective of numerical symbolism and um, the Greeks and proportions of, of the temple and so forth and how this system came to be in terms of the, the primary tone, the fifth and the, and the fourth. I have a fascinating little pamphlet um, that I haven't had a chance to read yet. Uh, somebody's thesis on how the proportions of the Ark of the Covenant is the foundation for Western harmony. Because the idea of numbers and the of how numbers are transferred, remember we talked before about the numbers that are inherent in creation, that are used in design, that are effective in, um, in oral interpretation and so forth, are all consistent. And so there's a, there's a foundation there of relationship. 
So with the idea of organum, uh, go look again at the amen on the, on the first page. Amen. Everyone sing that. Amen. Now this group over here sing that. Amen. Sing it boldly. One more time. Amen. Now you two sections, you have the same relationship of notes, but a fifth higher. Amen. Sing that. Amen. Sing one more time. Amen. Oh, you got your part. Ready? Together. Amen. That's organum. Cool. Let's do that one more time, just for the fun of it. Okay. Ready? Amen. So simple harmony in that you're moving in the same directions at the same time at a fixed interval. And that created an, a level of, of harmony. Now, some of this happens naturally within the harmonic series, and that's a whole other conversation as well. But when a note is in tune, these, these, these other notes sound above it. And as architecture developed within the context of building churches, um, there is this natural resonance, and notes would continue to sound. And as you sang, you would wind up singing on top of what you already sang because it's still reverberating in the space. And so some of these, these natural rhythms, the fifths and the octaves and things like that, came out you know, within, within the space itself as well as singing on top of one another. And th this idea of these multiple sounds happening um, then led to further developments. So the first is the, uh, the Ars Antiqua. Of course, nobody names himself you know, the old art. That's always successive movements that name you old. Um, so it was Ars Nova that named the Ars Antiqua. Um, the Notre Dame School was really where the idea of adding extra pitches came, uh, came to be. So there was um, Leonin, earliest known composer that we know by name, born in Paris, died there as well. He studied at Notre Dame and then later became a priest there. Um, also during this time, the idea of being a composer or being someone who concentrated solely on writing music was kind of unheard of. I mean, it, you, you, that was something that you did in the context of another role. Uh, so if you were a priest or if you were a part of the church or part of, part of the context of worship, that might be something that you would do as well, but not something that you would do on your own. And so what he did was he developed um, the idea of polyphony, adding a second voice to an already known Gregorian chant melody. So instead of what we just did in organum in terms of moving up and down at the same time, he created a second part that would move sometimes contrary motion, um, sometimes would stay on a note, sometimes would move. So, but they created a second part basically above what was the original Gregorian chant melody. So it was embellishing or augmenting uh, what was already there, what was a known entity in terms of the original chant. The other things that he did is he began a... Um, more of a, a grouping of rhythms, uh, kind of a two-one kind of thing, da 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 da, it, with regards to you know, forcing um, lyrics into a more rhythmic um, rhythmic presentation. It's it's in three, because three has numerical symbolism associated with the Trinity. 
uh, and all sorts of other things. Um, but the, the idea is, so music was in three, that had emphasizing a theological foundation and content um, while adding that other part. And he compiled what was known as the great book, the uh, Magnus Liber. It was a cycle of two-part uh, pieces for the entire church year. So you know, as Gregory had de decided which pieces of music uh, should be sung at which part of the liturgical year, what Leonin did was took that um, codification of musical ideas and added additional music to it. And so now there was a two-part setting for a year's worth of music. One of his pupils, uh, Periton, revised that and added a third and fourth part. Now, I don't know why Leonin, after adding a second part, didn't think of a third or fourth part. Um, you know, some of these things seem obvious in retrospect, uh, but maybe not necessarily in the moment. Um, but his student did so. And so he revised it, added a third and a fourth part uh, based on the original chant melody and written above it. So a couple terms there, too. The cantus firmus means fixed song. And so the cantus firmus would be the original chant, the known, the known melody uh, on, on which these other parts were added. And then the other parts were basically um, called discants, or what we think of like a descants, things that would go above the melody, and then eventually below the melody. Um, sometimes the cantus firmus, the fixed song, would be played by instruments, because people would already know that. They would know that part of the piece. And so the instruments would play that, and, um, and the other parts would be sung by choir, which is where we get the word tenor as well, uh, which means to hold. Um, sometimes uh, what would happen, especially in, in these early pieces, you would take a chant melody and you would elongate it. And so it would be a held, it would be a held melody. Uh, so you would hold it out in long notes. So imagine if you sang, that would be a tenor part. It's a known melody, but you've you know, stretched it way out. On top of that then would be all these other parts going to town on, on you know, elaborating around that and moving around that known melody. And so what the known melody becomes then the foundation of that uh, to these other parts. What you see, for, you know, if I haven't made it obvious, what you see is a greater complexity of music that's happening. This is far away from the idea of, of chanting psalms, like where we started a few weeks ago, um, and you know, a thousand years ago, uh, from where we are now, uh, to, to something that requires a lot more skill, a lot more training. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But once this started, once this development occurred, then successive developments occurred. And I just threw a few names down for you from the Ars Nova uh, in the Renaissance. Um, these were incredibly well-known composers for their eras. Now, they're not really well-known to most of us, uh, sadly. Um, but these, are, these were you know, the rock stars of liturgical music in the, uh, the 13th century, 14th century, et cetera. Um, Machaut was born in France. Um, he wrote various pieces for the church and, and, uh, and for outside the church. Um, he 
His works are longer, uh, more complex. And one thing that he added as well is that he treated the interval of the third and the sixth as consonant, uh, which is not something that had ha really happened before in that regard. So things that we take for granted, sixths and thirds are like regular consonant notes for us. Um, the fourths and the fifths were more consonant for, in their ears, and those were added then by Michaud. Uh, Dufay, also born in France, next, uh, next century there, served at the Burgundian court, moved to Italy. Uh, he created what was known as the, um, uh, the cyclical form um, of a mass in which each, uh, each movement of the mass that he composed was, was built on the same melodic idea. And so there was a consistency, an inherent consistency uh, with the compositions of, of what he was doing in, in that regard. Um, and that became then a common idea. Um, for example, um, the, the Sanctus and the Gloria and the Anus Dei and the, uh, the Kyrie that we sing, um, those are melodically linked. There's melodic ideas that, that start all those. Um, um, so that they're, they're, some are in minor and some are in major, but it's using the same tones um, and the same ideas, melodic ideas, uh, so that they're all of a piece. They're all connected together. And I mentioned also, um, ask him to pray, but just because he was Martin Luther's favorite composer. And uh, we'll talk some more about the context of that. Um, as we get to Reformation hymnody um, next week. So what, what happens then, too, is you've got these named composers. So this is different. You've got, you know, before you had anonymity and writing in, in this uh, more codified uh, context, um, adding of parts, named composers, um, this explosion of ideas, and, uh, and the, the complexity that came with that. There's a wonderful quote about, um, that, that I put in here about um, polyphony or about counterpoint, which would be another name for it. It's hard to write a beautiful song. It is harder to write several individually beautiful songs that when sung simultaneously, sound is a more beautiful polyphonic whole. The internal structures that create each of the voices separately must contribute to the emergent structure of the polyphony, which in turn must reinforce and comment on the structures of the individual voices. The way that is accomplished in detail is counterpoint. Part of the idea of this, part of the justification of this, was the idea that you were actually representing cosmic music, that individual voice parts as they sounded together and as they interacted with one another was reflective then of greater cosmic ideas. I want to play for you just a few moments of a, um, a piece by Palestrina, who's probably one of the, the greatest composers that, uh, that ever lived, uh, Renaissance. Um, this is a, based on um, create, um, Holy Spirit come. See if this works.
uh, see how that would feel in a space, you know, a large cathedral space. You've got these voice parts coming in. And I don't know if you could notice or not, but as the different voice parts come in, they echo one another, melodic ideas. And so you've got this, this interweaving of all these voices um, singing back and forth. What you don't hear are women. Um, those are that's boy voices and, and, and um, male voices. Um, and that goes back to something that we talked about briefly mentioned uh, at the very beginning. Uh, I think it was week two, maybe into week, week one into week two. Because of cultural influences, because of what was seen as, um, as um, pagan aspects or licentiousness in pagan worship with, with female sing singers, um, the church at a point in time decided to eliminate women singing in worship and to keep it male only. Um, and so it was one of those, inst one of those sad instances in which in, to avoid the appearance, uh, avoiding the appearance of evil in the world, it allowed something you know, of sin to enter into the church itself by not allowing women to participate as part of the congregation. Um, you know, part of the lesson of that too is you know, we have to be willing to be misunderstood um, in order to stand for what is right. Um, and to, to you know, have those more difficult conversations that are parsing you know, elements of truth and understanding that more clearly than just kind of cutting things off. Um, and along the same lines there, with the development of the choirs, um, you have this inherent tension between wanting to present those things which are beautiful and beautifully done and are reflective of the glory of God. I mean, that's glorious music. Um, but it's also out of reach of the congregation. And so that tension between presenting things which are glorious, that are reflective of that aspect of the character of God, but also shepherding and leading the congregation in, in, um, in, in a way that is, um, that is imminent, that makes God known to them. Um, one seems remote. Uh, on the other hand, when God becomes informal or chummy um, in worship, you lose that aspect of, of the transcendence of who God is. And uh, I think it's necessary to, to do, be able to do both, um, to recognize all those aspects of the character of God. It's interesting, too, that um, you know, with, with the advent of these choirs, it, uh, it eliminated the necessity of the congregation worshiping. Um, they weren't necessary. They weren't needed. Um, now, I, I've also been in situations in more contemporary churches in which the congregation was not needed. Um, because it was so loud that, you know, there wasn't really an opportunity to participate and be a congregation. I've also been in situations with an organ and, and brass choir that I had no idea where I was supposed to sing. Um, so the idea of leading the congregation in worship, it became much, you know, become, it's so easy to become more performance-oriented, you know, no matter what the style is, that you actually eliminate the role of the congregation in the context of worship, uh, which, becomes a, which becomes a problem in either direction. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a couple weeks. Uh, but you see, that, you see that tension even now from the very beginning of the church with regards to who's singing um, and then, then the development of these musical ideas in a way in which it eliminated the ability for you know, the normal person in the pew um, to be able to participate in worship in a meaningful way. And so it became much more of a spectator opportunity because you couldn't sing, couldn't participate and be a part of that unless you were well-trained. Um, 
along those lines too, and on the back cover, you've got the text of what we know as the doxology. It's actually the last verse of a, of a hymn by Thomas Ken and, uh, and music by Thomas Tallis. We've sung this tune before. What we haven't done in worship is the fact that this is, a, this is known as you know, the Tallis Canon um, because it can be sung like a round, like a canon, which is a form of polyphony. Um, in the amount of time that we had, this was the best example I could think of to have us sing polyphonically <laughs> without you know, intense instruction. Uh, so let, let's sing the melody here, and then we'll divide up into groups real quick to get an idea of how the different voice parts would come in. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And that can go into a four-part round, but we'll do three, I think, with our group here. Um, so if you'll be group one, group two, group three, you have an unfair size advantage, but use it wisely. Um, I'll bring you in um, to various parts. Okay, we'll start here. Praise God from whom, praise God from whom. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Gives you a little bit of a taste in terms of polyphony. It's the same, exact same melody, but the idea of different voice parts coming in. What that gives you, too, is a spatial awareness as well. Um, because when you have different voice parts coming in from different parts of the room, especially you think again, you know, beautiful acoustically, uh, acoustically tuned space, um, these different voice parts coming in and layering one another. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a transcendent moment there, even in the context of something like this that is easy enough to sing and to be able to teach. Um, questions on today's lesson. A, a, lot of, a lot of history, but uh, a lot of technical details, but an interesting development in this period of, of, church, of church music. Yes? I think it's there, so I think it's more the latter, and the, the kind of catching up with, with the uh, uh, inherent aspects of what could be there. Because there's that harmoniousness, um, and, and that, you know, kind of that, some of that happens naturally. Uh, it's just a matter of, of being able to know what to do with it. Yes, Jim. Uh, two quick questions. The music that you've been describing solely for the mass, or were there other opportunities for this set of music to be used in church? And also, what instruments were allowed to be used in the mass? 
Um, the, the, the music we're talking about right now is, um, was primarily, specifically the music we're talking about, was, was for worship. Uh, these, some of these same composers also wrote music that was non-liturgical in function. And, um, and that's a whole other conversation, and maybe, maybe we'll get a little bit to that next week. We'll see. But the, the, uh, what we think of in terms of non-liturgical or folk music, et cetera, was very closely akin to what we think of as high music or art music um, in terms of, of the content or the context of it, just in the, the, uh, the complexity of it. Um, so in that regard, this is, this is liturgical, but the same things are happening at the same time. You've got um, the, um, the balladeers, you've got um, the um, uh, troubadours and the trouvères and the jongleurs and all these other um, secular musicians who are making music and writing things at the same time. Along the same time, you get the ballad of Robin and Marion, uh, which is a secular song cycle on the life of Robin Hood um, in the, the, the same, about the same period as this. So those things are happening at the same time. In terms of instruments, um, depends on where you are, um, but some brass and uh, um, um, some string type instruments, but yeah, not, not necessarily what we would think of. Or we're also talking about the development of instruments as well. So when we think of instruments, there are precursors in late medieval and Renaissance period of what those would look like. Um, it's like the, the precursor of, the, um, of the, the trombone is the sackbutt that, you know, not quite the same instrument, not nearly as melodious, um, but the same kind of idea, you know. So, yes. So when uh, Perotin added the third and fourth parts, mm -hmm. and this is pre-Michaud saying that the third and the sixth are consonant, what were those like? Because even, even in a polyphonic, the more voices you add, the more apparent horizontal harmonies are, mm -hmm. kind of unavoidably. So if there's not, so were the third and sixth there, and was Michaud just saying, looking back at that and saying, oh, the third and sixth are really working here in these situations? The third and sixth were there, but they were dissonant, or, or considered to be dissonant. So you could pass through that, but you wouldn't land there. So you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't also land with a third and a chord. Uh, there's some examples in which uh, a, vo a voice part would naturally kind of move to a third, but on the final on the final chord would then move up to the fifth, so that you don't end with you, you end with an open sound and not um, not the inner voice or what we would think of as the inner voice of a chord. Yeah. Yes. Um, this kind of ties to what Jim asked. And it may not be a fair question to ask because it's not really a topic. But what was going on in the little country churches? I mean, we're talking about high. I mean, there was still, I mean, still always the, the chant, the, the, the foundation that had you know, lasted for a thousand years, basically unchanged uh, of codification. But you would have to send people to be trained um, to be able to do that. Um, so it was, it was much less um, than these particular churches. You think, too, I mean, you think, um, we think, in terms of culture, the immediate transmission of ideas. Like, so if somebody, if, if Palestrina or Michaud or, you know, uh, it, you know, go back to Leonin, the idea of adding a single part, um, you know, word would spread. Nobody else is doing this. It's only happening in Notre Dame. And so word would spread. There's something new going on at Notre Dame. And so you need to go hear that. And so people would, you know, 
go on pilgrimages to you know musicians with say what's going on there and then how can I bring that back to where I am um, and so it's not like you know somebody writes and you know has a new composition and gets it on Spotify. You know, it, it, you know, it takes a while for those things then to develop over time. I mean, even in the day of Bach, you know, several hundred years later, you know, uh, the, um, um, around 1700, he takes a journey to go visit Buxtehude, who is an organist who's doing some, um, some interesting things with liturgical music. But he's heard this, I, that this is going on, and so he walks this huge distance to go visit for several weeks, which turns into several months, to kind of get an idea of what's going on there, to, to take those ideas and then bring them back. And so it takes a lot longer for ideas to spread, um, and it's much more by you know, word of mouth and by foot, um, but those things then, then do happen. So you know, it would take even longer, even if these things are going on, it would take longer for them to get into the more remote areas anyway, just over a matter of time. So this, this leads us to the point, too, for next week um, with the Reformation. Um, one of the things that Luther wanted to be able to do is to restore to the congregation the opportunity to participate in worship and to restore the idea of congregational song. Um, so that's, that's where we're headed then with next week with the, the development of hymnody um, in the time of Luther and beyond through, uh, through the Reformation. So, thank you all.